They were going to give your baby phenobarbital and stop his breathing. And then he was going to be flown in a helicopter to Riley Children's Hospital. That was the first moment I really realized that I might not see him again. I did not know if he would be alive when I got there. You are listening to Badass, a podcast where we hold authentic conversations about the most difficult experiences life can hold for us. We explore the transformative power of these events and what they teach us about ourselves and the world. I am your host, Mirabai Rose. Welcome to Badass. Today on Badass, we are talking with Kate McQueen. Kate is originally from Ashtabula, Ohio, on the shores of Lake Erie. After attending high school in Columbus, Indiana, she moved to Bloomington to get her undergraduate degree from Indiana University. She worked in the restaurant industry for more than a decade, serving, catering, and eventually owning restaurants. After sustaining a significant back injury, She was inspired to help others through massage, as it helped her immensely. She went on to become a massage therapist and offered body work to clients for seven years. She met and married Kylas McQueen, who is from Bloomington, and decided to put down roots here. After the traumatic birth of her son, Keenan, she and Kylas have learned how to navigate the world as parents of a child with several life-limiting conditions. When her son was two, she went on to get a master's degree in education. She now lives with her husband and 12-year-old son, Keenan and 7-year-old daughter, Amelia. She also serves on the board of directors for Stonebelt, an agency that advocates for those with disabilities so that she can use her experience to help others. Today, Kate shares the story of Keenan's birth and the terrifying period of time shortly after— when Keenan hovered between life and death on several occasions. His tiny body was racked with seizures that were damaging his brain. And at first, Kate struggled to get help for him, all the while knowing something was terribly wrong. Finally, Kate was able to get a doctor's attention, and at that point it became clear that baby Keenan's life was in danger. Kate and Kylas then became acquainted with a life they never imagined for themselves. One lived largely inside of a children's hospital for the first two years of Keenan's life. Luckily, Keenan survived those years. Today, he is a beautiful 12-year-old boy with a smile that goes straight to your heart. And he is profoundly affected by all that his body went through at the beginning of his life. Kate, welcome to Badass. I am so glad that you're here with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, too. Yeah. I wanted to start by asking you about Keenan's pregnancy. Was there anything unusual about it that made you suspect that something might be wrong with your baby? Well, that's a complicated question because I was a first-time mom. I'd never been pregnant before. I only knew what I was being told, and I knew that pregnancy is going to profoundly affect your body. And for me, I was not the glowy pregnant woman. I was, um, I did have uh, hyperemesis gravidarum. I always say HG because I'm not great with that pronunciation, but I threw up seven to 10 times a day. Um, I was very weak up until about 17 weeks pregnant. 
uh, I was able to uh, gain weight. Uh, my fundal height was was fine, and that's the kind of the size of the bump that was growing. Um, so, besides, you know, kind of more nausea than normal. Everything seemed to be fine. I was very healthy. I, you know, was hiking at least an hour a day. Was eating, you know, I was keeping food enough food down. Um, and in general, I felt like I was having a normal pregnancy. I felt like you know my entire world was rocked by because I was suddenly growing a human inside of me, and that's the most bizarre thing I had ever done to date. But um, things seemed fine. And so I am a person who likes to be really prepared. And um, I kind of started getting services from both a lay midwife and an OBGYN in town. Um, Because from the very beginning, I was really under the impression that I was going to do whatever I needed to do for the baby. So if everything was fine, I would have a home birth. We lived three minutes from the hospital. But if for any reason I needed to go to the hospital, I was not opposed to that. And um, we had toured the hospital and, um, in fact, went there at one point later in my pregnancy. And so in general, in my mind, everything was going great. And both of my care providers were telling me that I was having a normal and healthy pregnancy. And was there anything that they picked up on any ultrasounds or anything that would have given anyone pause? Um, There was an ultrasound that there was a little concern with the size of the baby. Um, And I remember later seeing notes on the ultrasound that... um, that I had mentioned that there were people uh, that were very small in my family because we, my husband and I happen to have people that are four, seven to six, four in our family. We just, and they left the part out that there was both extremes in our family. We mm-hmm. do have people that are, you know, shorter stature and we do have really tall people in my family, in our family. So, and they just wrote, patient says that there are small people in her family. And, Other than that, my fundal height uh, started being, at about 19 weeks, started being a little bit lower than was normal. Can you explain what fundal height is? So fundal height, and again, I'm not not a medical doctor, but the fundal height is like, they actually measure from your, your pubic symphysis all the way up to where the top of the uterus is. Um, where you can feel kind of the the uterus inside the belly of the pregnant woman. And the the height is um, kind of a, a measure of growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at about 19 weeks, that stopped being an ideal height. And because I'm a person who Googles everything and researches everything, I, you know, asked a lot of questions about that. At that point, my lay midwife started having her assistant um, come and was doing most of my checks at that point. And I really have a lot of, a lot of um, compassion for this assistant as well, because um, I think she was placed into a situation that was not, she was not ready for, Mm -hmm. but where she was really screening me. And I later found out she had almost no training and was 20 years old. Oh, wow. And that was not explained mm-hmm. <laughs> like, in a way that um, 
that I fully understood. Later on, when I noticed that people in my, um, I was, I was a Babs mom. Uh, Babs was an organization in, in in Bloomington that that helped pregnant mothers and newly delivered families. And um, when I went to my Babs class, I was noticing that I was a lot smaller than the people that were even a month behind me. And so I did go to my OBGYN and say, I'm really concerned that I'm so small. And I requested a growth ultrasound and was denied a growth ultrasound. And he said, we don't do that. Oh, And so I come from a family with that we have a tendency towards anxiety. And I married into a family that has a tendency to not be overly anxious, which makes my husband and I a great balancing act and and is, is part of what I think makes us work so well. But I was really trying to not be anxious. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of kept dampening down my concerns. Yeah, And that was something that I chose to do because I thought I was being calmer and trying to be calmer. And uh, so... Things were relatively proceeded um, until I was about 30 weeks. And at 30 weeks, um, it was when H1N1 was going around. Mm-hmm. And I did get very sick and I had some sort of flu. I did not get swabbed because that was, we just didn't do that back then <laughs> as much. And, um, but I was uh, put on bed rest for a week. Um, and the, my OBGYN just said, don't do anything that brings the contractions back. And so I proceeded to pretty much not get off the couch for most of the remainder of my pregnancy. At that point, you know, we had gone to the hospital. We toured the hospital. We, I had assumed because um, I had had preterm labor that I had lost part of my mucus plug during that time that I was no longer eligible. And so for about week 30 to week 35, I assumed that we were having a hospital birth. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, when I went in and started doing my my weekly checks with the OBGYN, I talked to him about it, and he said, no, you're fine. You can have a healthy home birth, not a problem. And just to clarify, you went into preterm labor when you were sick with the flu? Yeah. Wow. So. Yeah. Um, and so, but then at that point, everything, you know, I was... You know, I definitely got better and was able to be a little bit more active. And, you know, I wasn't, I did have to stop massaging at that point. Um, But I, you know, I was feeling a lot better. After going through a second pregnancy, I realized, no, I was still pretty uh, not able to do a lot. Not Mm -hmm. able to do certainly as much as a lot of pregnant women can do in their last trimester. So that was kind of where we were. Yeah. Um, and then you actually did end up having a home birth. You yeah. did decide to go that route. Yeah. And um, so I my labor started at night. It seemed fine. It seemed to be progressing well. It, it was rather quick, but yeah, I was in this lovely closet bathtub that my husband had put into, you know, it was, it was really wonderful. I had a doula. Um, but there was a little bit of a disconnect between people really believing that I was in labor. And um, I remember I remember my doula really believed me, <laughs> my dear, dear doula, Anastasia. And um, so 
everything seemed to be going fine through um, the labor. The midwife did not come um, until about three or four minutes before um, the delivery. And that was one of the things. um, My mom was a respiratory therapist for 35 years and was on a neonatal resuscitation team for seven years. So one of the big concerns that I was sure to check on because of her experiences and her trauma through her work experiences was that I wanted to make sure that there was suction and oxygen if um, if we were doing a home birth. And so I was getting a little concerned when the midwife didn't come. Um, and she did end up coming in the last few minutes. She did not have time to bring in o- suction or oxygen. Um, Keenan came out uh, and was quite small. He was he was born on his due date. He was five pounds. Um, and I remember her saying that his Apgar was nine, and I remember going, no, it's not in my brain. Mm. <laughs> I remember thinking, no, he's too purple for that. He's not a nine. What is she talking about? And I remember that that standing out as the first time that I felt something was different than what she was saying. I had also made it very clear that if anything was wrong, that I was not afraid to go to the hospital, that I was 100% like, like if se- things are seeming not typical, let's like yeah. call in the bus, we're getting on the ambulance right away, you know? like So at that point, they also measured his head and they measured his chest. And um, I remember distinctly that it was the first time I had heard, oh, he has IUGR, which is intrauterine growth restriction. And I said, what is that? And she she told me. And I did not realize at that point that that is the point that the ambulance should have been called for my son. Mm. Um, and what is inner uterine growth so restriction? It was just a it was a sign that so the the chest was either the same size or um, larger than the circumference of the head. So it shows that there was um, something going wrong with um, how he was growing. Mm-hmm. And what later on we ended up being able to um, determine happened is he had something called placenta velamentis, where normally um, he had an an abnormal umbilical cord and normally 70% of um, babies do not make it um, that have this condition. But he only had one vein and one artery connecting him to the placenta and me. So he was really, he came out on his due date, but he was really kind of undercooked, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so at that point, I really, I remember looking at him, being in the water still, looking at him, and he looked in my eyes, which was, you know, kind of surprising. (laughs) And I just, my first thing I said to him was, please stay with me. Hmm. And that that was my first intuition was like that he wasn't really solidly here. Yeah. Um, at that point, they did take him from me and got me out of the water because the umbilical cord, which was not correctly formed, actually broke off. And so at that point, they were very concerned at my safety and if I was going to bleed out because the idea was if the umbilical cord 
detaches from the placenta, before the placenta detaches from the uterus, then the mother can um, can bleed out very quickly. Mm. And so they did have to go in and manually remove the placenta, which was astonishingly odd <laughs> to have done. Yeah. Um, but I remember there being this this moment of relief when we realized, okay, everything's fine. Her placenta is intact. It had already detached before, you know, and that kind of like I was out of the woods and everyone took a little bit of a collective sigh of relief. But I feel like at that point they kind of forgot this whole IUGR thing. Yes. So, um, and just the fact that he was five pounds. Um if you're born in the hospital at five pounds, then it kind of is a um, trigger for um, an additional set of tests because there's obviously something wrong. Mm-hmm. So uh, it is a big regret. You know, as much as I know I was informing myself as much as I possibly could and making the best decisions I had with the information I had, I mean... I wish I would have just driven to the hospital that morning, but I really had been just had been given a lot of support that it really was a safe choice. And I think that that's one of the things that I know we've talked about this before, but where I really do have an issue with some of the laws in Indiana, because I know that home birth can be a safe option for some people, but my experience in the state of Indiana was that with the laws and the rules around who is allowed to um, attend your birth and give you medical care in your home, it creates a very unsafe environment. And that became really highlighted to me after two things happened. One, after I tried to get medical care Mm -hmm. for my newborn, and it was very difficult. And then months later, when my best friend was preparing for a home birth in New York State, Mm -hmm. which has a lot of different laws than Indiana, and you are allowed trained and licensed medical professionals in your home. Right, right. Because home birth here is almost like this shadow world, yeah. right? Because yeah. it's not... Uh, is it is it true that it's not even legal to have a home birth um, here? You know what? Part of me, I, I want to say that I've been somewhat out of that loop for mm-hmm. a decade mm-hmm. because it... Um, I have a very negative home birth story, and I mean, I have, I have literally been told by people to not share it before. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Be, and you're not embraced by the home birth community. Um, I would say some people definitely. I mean, I I know some people who definitely feel like, you know, I, I wouldn't say it was everybody, but I would say that there are definitely some people who don't think I should share the story because I had a negative outcome, but. To me, it's really important because I don't feel like I would have had a negative outcome if there were different laws on the books. Yes. I feel like if I would have been in New York State or in a state that allows for a certified nurse midwife to be in the home and for, um, you know, a nurse or a doctor to come and check and a pediatrician can come to your house within the first 48 hours, like that would have been a very different scenario for me and my son. Absolutely. And so I feel like it's... um, my issues with home birth are not my issues with home birth or especially not with natural birth, but it is with the restrictive laws in Indiana that keep you from getting um, medical care in your home. 
Right, right. And because it seems like the laws in states like New York are designed to support and protect a woman yes. and a baby when they choose the option. Whereas the laws in Indiana seem to be meant to punish uh, midwives who are trying to give women that option, which has it, historically been a, yeah. a good option for I, women. Yeah, if if you if you don't have if you don't have uh, any issues, and and although you know I didn't have any issues that I was aware of, but I think that it it's I don't know if it's meant to punish as much as it is to control, and to make sure that um, uh, women are going into situations where insurance is going to be billable. So Keenan had been born, and you were at home, and you were trying to just. Relax into having this tiny newborn baby. Um, but I know from talking to you about your experience that, you know, there were things even very early on that just made you uneasy. Yeah, I, you know, he was, a, oh, he had the most brilliant blue eyes, right? He still does. But he was very scrawny looking. There was just something that I could not relax around him. Everything in my body was screaming that something was wrong. And I was feeling like there was this very like happy and jovial like mood in my house and it was almost like a party and and that I couldn't relax and I couldn't um I I almost felt like every time I expressed my concern, it was well-meaning, oh, you just need to relax. Oh, it's just your anxiety. Oh, you just need to relax. And But I really felt like my intuition was just, you know, I was trying to ignore my intuition and I felt like my intuition was being ignored. And, and it was it was this really, really strong battle. Uh, within my within my brain at that time, because I wanted to enjoy this magical moment of becoming a parent, but everything about me was saying there is something very wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, so when the midwife came and she said, "Okay, I think that you should go get checked out," and I was a hundred percent on board. And like, how I, long had it been oh, since Keenan's birth at that point? I want to say seven hours, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so we brought him to the ER. And I know that this is one of the things that I really did not understand, at least about home birth in Indiana, is I thought that if something was wrong with me during labor or shortly after labor, that I could walk into an ER and get help for my child right away. And I brought in this puny little baby who at that point had dropped down to four pounds uh, because we later learned that while it seemed that he was nursing, he had what they call a non-nutritive suck and he was actually not getting any milk from me. Um, because he didn't have the coordination uh, of his sucking ability to to get milk. So he was um, dehydrated and losing weight very quickly. And, and this uh, was just his second day of life. Yes. This was, you know, this was 
we might have been, you know, all of this is such a blur during that time for obvious reasons. Um, but we're definitely within the first 24 hours of his life. Mm-hmm. And so we brought him to the hospital and um, I really, at that point, um, I also didn't realize if you ever have a very young child and you go to an ER, um, you have the right to ask for a pediatrician or a pediatric specialist um, because while I have so much respect for emergency room doctors and everyone who works in an emergency room because of how many times they have helped save my son's life, um, they are not always pediatric experts. Mm -hmm. And um, there are times in a child's life that you need a pediatric expert. And so the doctor that was caring for us was actually was holding my son while he had what I later found out to be called a unilateral bicycle seizure um, for two minutes in the doctor's arms. And the doctor did not recognize us and told me that he was doing a little dance like Ellen DeGeneres Mm. and handed my baby back to me and told me to take him home and enjoy being a mom. Um, There was a call put into a pediatrician. This was, I remember it was about Saturday at 8 at this point, 8 p.m. There was a call put into a pediatrician, but the pediatrician opted to not come in and opted to not order any tests. So Keenan essentially came in near death and was sent home. And I, again, felt like every, I still, I I left the emergency room knowing something was grossly wrong and just felt like no one was listening to me. Yes. And, and, and questioning myself because, you know, like, Like, was I just being overly anxious? You know, was this just me being nervous, being a first-time mom? But there really seemed to be something wrong. Yeah. And so the ER had told us to check in with the pediatrician the next morning, and that they told us that they had made an appointment. And so we showed up at 10 o'clock in the morning, and um, they had not made an appointment, but we kind of explained what was happening. And, oh, the, the nurses at, at pediatrician's office had the best poker faces in the world. And they handled everything so amazingly and just got us into a room. My husband knew one of the nurses, just wonderful human being who kept a smile on her face and years later told me that she shut the door and ran <laughs> into the room where the pediatrician was. And grabbed her. And so those nurses knew, oh, just, they from knew just from one at glance at your son yeah. that there was something really, yeah. really wrong. And so that's when we got to meet the doctor that saved my son's life. And she walked in and took one look at him and knew. And it was this moment. And then I, I, was, I remember nursing him and I remember him turning ashen. And I remember looking at her and saying, did he just turn blue? Is that, I think I said, did he just turn ashen? Because it was like very weird color. And she said, yes. And I just remember her saying something to me where I felt this intense relief that someone finally saw what I saw and Mm -hmm. someone finally was believing me. Yes. At the same time of this horrible terror of, 
oh my God, I'm right. There's something really wrong with my son. Yes. And at that point, she said, I'm going to call a helicopter and I'm going to call an ambulance and we're going to bring you to the hospital. And she was very matter of fact and and said, we're, you know, that she thought he was having seizures and that she explained that they were going to give him a loading dose of phenobarbital that would stop his breathing and they would uh, intubate him and take him via helicopter to Riley Children's Hospital in Indianapolis. Wow. And um, so at that point, I rode in the ambulance uh, with him. And then my husband brought the car over. And my mom was with us by that time. And and the absolutely amazing people who work on the helicopters, when they show up, there's just this like energy and level of focus and um, just power of persistent focus and care that these people showed up. And I instantly knew that he was being taken to the best place he possibly could at that point. Um, and the helicopter was to take him to Riley? Yeah, Riley it was Children's a lifeline, Hospital. Yeah, yeah. Li- it was a lifeline to, to Riley's ch- Children's Hospital. And for listeners who don't live here in Indiana, um, we have one major children's hospital in the state, Riley Children's Hospital in Indianapolis. And that is usually where when a when a child or, or baby is very, very sick, that is usually um, the place that they are sent. Yeah. And it was about an hour um, an hour drive for us. Um, and so we quickly went home and to grab some things. There is a side story <laughs> that during my entire pregnancy, I actually, we had a, a really wonderful dog that we had raised since a very young age and um, that had gotten a rare illness in Indiana, it was actually the first time in 30 years that there had been a dog with valley fever that had gone into our dog's brain and was was slowly killing her. And we didn't, it's a fungus that lives out west. And I had been hiking in California early in my pregnancy. And when I packed, I put my hiking boots in, in a plastic bag and put them in my backpack you know, my backpack and flew home. And I remember taking them out and putting them by the back door. And I remember watching my puppy lick them clean. And she would always do that. You know, it was, it's just not something they test for in Indiana. So we literally went home and we looked at this puppy. (laughs) It's like a year old dog that we had, you know, had been our, our practice kid, we used to joke about, and who was dying on the floor. Oh my And unable to stand at this point. Um, And we were fairly certain that she had gone blind at at this point. And, you know, she was just a little over a year old. And so we went home. I remember grabbing a pump, a hand pump for breast milk and just grabbing things I thought we might need, having no idea. And, um, And just looking at and saying goodbye to our dog and knowing that we weren't ever going to see her again because Kate. she was she was that, you know, g- that far gone. Oh. And at that point, I called a dear friend of mine and she was like, 
you know, answered the phone, like, really happy, like, hey, what's going on? I was like, everything is horrible and I need your help. And she stepped up and she got a huge, huge group of people together. Um, We had so many people in the community just encircle us. Um, uh, We had a a good friend take our dog, uh, actually both of our dogs, and eventually had to put um, well, three days later, had to put our our dog down um, while we were while we were in um, Keenan was still in the PICU, um, which is like a NICU, but um, for babies that have been outside the hospital already. Uh-huh. And um, and then we pretty much just handed our house over to other people who took care of our life as we suddenly moved to to Riley to live with Keenan. Um, and, you know, I just want to back up just a minute because I, I have to tell you, my mind is still stuck on they were going to give your baby phenobarbital and stop his breathing, and then he was going to be flown yeah. in a helicopter to Riley Children's Hospital. And I'm just I'm just imagining, like, what it must have been like for you to put him in that helicopter. I've had a lot of time to deal with the concept of mortality with my child because he does have life-limiting illnesses. That was the first moment I really realized that I might not see him again. I did not know if he would be alive when I got there. And that, um, when I was in the back seat and... I remember opening up the the hand pump, the breast milk pump, because I was, you know, becoming engorged because, yeah, you know, I hadn't I hadn't nursed him, and I remember thinking about the fact that my friend that had given it to me had given it to me with a sweet note about how she couldn't wait till I opened this six months down the road, and we went out for margaritas together, and I realized that in that moment as I was like trying to figure out a breast pump for the first time, you know, like I'm like, haven't slept in two days. I just gave birth. I haven't had any postnatal care like whatsoever Mm -hmm. for myself. And I'm trying to figure out, and I realized I had this realization that I didn't know if he was going to be alive for the milk I was pumping. But I also had this realization that there was going to be a baby that would need this milk no matter what. And that what I could do was pump milk because it was special milk. It was the colostrum. It was something I could give mm-hmm. to him or someone else. And yeah. that was that was my drive there. Oh, and that really speaks to just this amazing, amazing thing that we have inside of us, you know, that we'll find that little bit of, um, of hope and something to cling to. Yeah. You didn't know if, if your baby was going to be alive, but somebody's was yeah and um yep <laughs> told myself I wasn't gonna cry but I knew that wasn't true and you made the host <laughs> cry so there you go you get, um, you get bonus points thanks <laughs> <laughs> um so when we did get there when we got to Riley um they actually didn't let us in the room with him for uh, about five hours And they were very difficult five hours, if you can imagine. But at the same time, um, 
you know, it was just an incredibly professional place. It's it's a teaching hospital. But I remember waiting in the consulting room and I remember like I have this really strong memory of I of holding sugar packets for my iced tea and I was just squeezing them and like over and over again. And I was like, this is weird that I can't stop doing this, you know? And uh-huh. I'm like like was kind of like almost like trying to get myself back in my body. Yeah, you know? Yeah. And I was doing that and you know, we'd already talked to we'd already talked to one of the doctors and who had who had made it clear that that they weren't sure he was gonna make it. And that is not something I now know, having been through a multitude of different experiences, that that is not something that is often said to you. Yes. And then I remember being interviewed by the social worker. Mm-hmm. And as we were going through that interview process with the social worker, I, I really was just disassociating. I, I was really kind of lost. Um and then all of a sudden it clicked when she was asking me about if I was feeding the baby. And all of a sudden it was like my rational brain clicked back on and was like, oh, they're here to make sure that <laughs> I'm a fit parent, you know? And 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 with no, like I, I 100% understand that that is what they had to do and what they were doing. And, but I just remember like taking a deep breath and being like, oh, I can't just check out. I can't just run away. Like I have to come back and explain to this woman everything that I was doing to try and keep my child alive because she needs to understand that I was trying to do everything in the interest of the welfare of my child. Yeah. And that and I remember like kind of seeing her relax when she realized I kind of like flipped back on and was like, oh, yeah, I was trying to feed my child and this is how often and this is, you know, and and um, these were all the steps that we took and that we had gone to the ER and had been sent home and, you know, like just kind of making the case that no, we weren't, right. you know. You were not neglectful in yeah. any way. Yeah. But man, just to have to have to heap that on top of yeah everything else that you were already dealing with. Well, I think at that point is where I started realizing, like, to look at things from, you know, from the perspective of the hospital. Like, we brought this child in that was near death and looked like it hadn't had food, and you know, like there it it became. You know, where I just kind of started being able to look at everything as let's look at his case. Let's look at what is going on with him and what we can do. And um, and then we just, you know, he, he continued to get, you know, have tiny milestones um, that – you know, for PICU and NICU parents, like, you know, being able to regulate his own temperature and, you know, like all these little tiny things. Um, He was trying to breathe on his own. He stopped having as much seizure activity. Were Uh, they able to give you more information about, like, what exactly is wrong with him? No. Uh, And that took, that took months Mm. to find out. Um, There were, 
you know, they did quickly do an, uh, a CAT scan and an MRI to see if there was active breeding, bleeding in the brain. That did give us a baseline. About six weeks later, we had an, a, another MRI. And at that point, they suspected that he had had a stroke. And that six weeks later, when we saw the damage, the scarring in his brain, it was confirmed that, yes, he had had a perinatal stroke, most likely in the first three days of life. So, yeah, that was really the first diagnosis that we got. Mm-hmm. Um, was, and I remember, you know, because they didn't know what was going on with him and because he had so many different disciplines and, and departments that were working with him, I was interviewed by so many doctors. And I remember being with one of the staff doctors, I want to say it was a developmental doctor. I don't actually remember, but you know, they always start with, how was your pregnancy? And I would always start, oh, my pregnancy was normal and, low, you know, and everything was fine. And I remember this just lovely, compassionate um, doctor who just turned to me and said, do you realize now that your pregnancy was very abnormal? And it kind of hit me. And I was like, I kind of thought it was when I was going through it, but <laughs> I kept being told that everything was fine, you know, and he pretty much broke down all the really large red flags that he was seeing just with what I was saying and that I really had a, a high-risk pregnancy um, from from his perspective. That um, And that was, that was hard. Yeah. Um, because I was definitely am the type of person that if I would have even thought I had a high risk pregnancy that you know like with my daughter okay then we're going we're going to high risk in Indianapolis and we're getting tested for everything you know and and that was hard for me because I thought I was getting double care I thought I was getting OBGYN and midwife I thought I was extra covering my bases and then to find out that so much of what was going wrong that I was ignorant to because, you know, everyone had told me getting pregnant would make you feel like, you know, everything was different. And I just didn't really understand, no, that wasn't normal level of feeling different. That was like something was wrong, feeling different. And on top of all the stress in that moment of, you know, what was happening in the yeah. day of, yeah. you know, that day at Riley, just to have to then process that, you know, you had not been given the care that you deserved. Yeah. And then we had um, kind of to circle back to this interesting moment with our dog. <laughs> so we had had our good friend who um, had worked at the shelter for many years pick our dog up. And we went into one of the nursing rooms at Riley, which is one of the only places that you could have any level of privacy. And as I was pumping, um, we actually were put onto speakerphone at the vet's office while they had to euthanize our dog. And it was really profoundly sad. <laughs> mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, like I'm 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 in a room next to my son's ICU room and 
saying goodbye to our dog on the phone and they're telling us that her ears were perking up. And and then I remember my husband and I, I remember Kai and I looking at each other and being like, you know, crying tears in our eyes and being like, okay, now we're going to go take care of our son, you know? Mm-hmm. And I still remember we were met at the door because, you know, everything's key, key cards there. And we were met at the door by our nurse. And I will always remember her name was Madonna. And she came up and she goes, have you seen him? And I got nervous, like, what, what's wrong with him, you know? And she's like, no. In the last half an hour, he's pinked up and he's like, and he had this total turnaround, right? Aww. And like, my husband is not the most uh, spiritual person in the world. And I just remember him walking in there and just breaking down and looking at my son who was visibly better, and going, you just follow that little yellow dog wherever she tells you to go. And like, like oh. so this, it became like, okay, Keenan has a spirit dog. <laughs> yes. And, um, but he really did. That was really his, at about three days after we had gotten to Riley, he had some sort of a turnaround. And um, to the point that with, uh, by day five, we were moved out of ICU and we were moved into a room um, where he had had a he ended up needing a pick line place, which is a, like a direct port in to give medicine like near the heart for like instead of a long term IV, and um, we kind of started our five weeks up at Riley. We almost lost him a few times during that time. It was really kind of in that period of time is when I realized, okay, I'm not letting anyone dampen my intuition anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an excellent mother's intuition and I'm going to learn how to scream about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was a period of time where he was starting to look bad again. I want to say he was about three weeks old. And I literally started telling every single person that walked in the room whether they were, um, it didn't matter. Right. Were they Tech, for, nurse, yeah, doctor. Ev- yeah. Everything. But there was, there was just, I told every single person until finally at like one in the morning, a doctor came in and was like, oh, yeah, he's going into shock. <laughs> and um, they had they had no idea what was going on, and they had drawn so much blood to run so many tests that he literally had to get a blood transfusion because oh. he was going into shock from the amount of... T- yeah, so... Wow. Wow. That's so important what you're talking about, that, um, that realization that, you know, you won't be just simply heard, right? Like that, that it's not going to happen that way. It's something that's really been a theme in this season. It's I've felt a little surprised that this has come up so many times. Um, but, but for women that, oh, yeah. you know, when women initially say there is something wrong, mm-hmm. they are ignored. Oh, absolutely. And it takes some real strategizing mm-hmm. to get anybody. It it has literally become like like all of my purpose is revolved around how now to be an advocate because being an advocate is really just figuring out how the person that you need to understand how they're going to hear it. It's not what I'm saying. It's not even what the reality is. It's it's who. Are they as a person and how do they need to hear what I need them to hear? Mm-hmm. And it 
it, you know, since Keenan has, you know, he's 12 now. So I've been through, you know, three years of first steps therapy. We've been through IEPs. We've been through countless, we've been through multiple um, situations where we've almost lost him. We almost lost him in kindergarten to um, the flu and a really serious bout of pneumonia that was complicated by him having a really negative reaction to a medication that I was not heard about. And, and you know, there, was, there has just been countless times that it has come down to, okay, someone's not listening and I need to figure out how, like what they need to, what they need to understand from me mm-hmm. to get them to actually listen. And um, sometimes I can come across as a little harsh <laughs> if I have tried multiple ways. But at the same time, like my son is literally alive because I've held my ground sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's been absolutely necessary. Yeah. yeah. And I and I hope that going forward that I don't need to do that as much, but I also I always have that that ability and you know, and I've also learned that just calm advocacy and education educating people on unique needs and accepting neurodivergence is kind of what works most of the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah. 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 So you had mentioned that you were at Riley for five weeks uh, for the first the first stint and mm-hmm. uh, Keenan kind of had a bit of a roller coaster ride where you know, he'd look better, he'd look worse, he'd look better, he'd look worse. But at some point at the end of that five weeks, he looked well enough that they felt comfortable with him going home. Yeah, we were able to come home at around five weeks with apnea monitors and um, and him on oxygen. Um, we only stayed home for about a week until he did have another helicopter ride. And then we went up for I want to say about another week. Um, At that point, we realized that he was, his apnea was really um, significant. He He had low tone, he had low muscle tone. And so his apnea issues were, he was stopping breathing up to 19 times an hour. Oh, man. So, uh... You know, the apnea monitor was very important. <laughs> the, uh, the oxygen to keep his airways open uh, were very important. And I remember finally being kind of home and feeling like we were going to be at home for a while at, at about nine weeks. And at that point is when First Step started showing up, which is... Um, the early intervention program here in Indiana are babies zero to 36 months. And we also had a nurse um, start coming to our house. Her name was Evelyn. <laughs> she was lovely. And I remember for the first time, she like picked up Keenan and like just started talking to him like a baby. And I like my whole brain was like, Oh, he's a baby. Like, like he had been like Aww. such like a, like it been such like a. Okay, I have to learn medical stuff. And then she was just like, ooing and awing over him. I'm like, oh, okay, let's enjoy this part. And, um, and then that's when his therapy started, you know, and and where he had occupational therapy and physical therapy and speech therapy, 
and developmental therapy and a really incredible social worker that was coming over uh, one to two times a week for the first three years of his life. Oh, I love this part of your story. I love that there was a program like this. And this is why it is so important to keep funding human services people. Oh, absolutely. So important. Well, and and one of the things is uh, like First Steps was absolutely instrumental in in helping Keenan be, you know, recover from his stroke to the best that like he neurologically could. And also to keep Kailas and I like our heads above water and like what was available to him because we were, we didn't know any of, you know, any social services that were really available to him. Um, uh, He was considered disabled by the time we came home. I don't even know who at Riley signed him up for uh, social security disability, but that happened. (laughs) But for me, I can't say enough about First Steps and the people that came into our life at that point. I have tried to maintain my advocacy for First Steps. I know that there has been a significant reduction in services available since Keenan was born. That actually happened when he was still um, getting services. And I remember being very angry because I I got very loud and very vocal and um, was reaching out to legislators and, and trying to let them know, like, hey, the neuroplasticity of these kids, like, we... Like the difference between one PT session and two PT sessions a week might mean if they're going to walk or mm-hmm. talk or feed themselves. Like this is too important of a time to to skimp on these services. Like, yeah, you can't get that time back. You can't. You can't. And um, and I remember them telling me that he got to keep his services. And I remember just like this burst of like rage Mm -hmm. and being like, oh, okay, I'm the squeaky wheel. I'm an educated woman with, with, you know, who's relatively comfortable. Oh, so I'm going to get shut up. And then I realized that there were all these other parents who didn't understand how to navigate the system. And I just remember being furious. And it was like, no, it's not just give it to me and my kid and shut me up. It's everybody needs this. And it's really when I realized, okay, I understand this world. I'm, I'm beginning to understand this world of disability a little bit more just by living in it. And I owe it to the people who cannot speak for themselves to fight for it. So, you know, I feel like fighting for first steps and fighting for the services of first steps is one of the most important things that we can do, even for our education system, because if we can get these kids when their neuroplasticity is like where they can really turn things around and they can get the help that they need before they enter into the public school system, we're going to be so much better off. So it, it, yes. it, it's, you know, it's a slippery slope when we start denying services to or restricting telling people. I know that that one of the things I was very upset to find out was that a... Um, local pediatrician's office was no longer informing um, their patients about the First Steps program because um, they were uh, a competitor. Oh, man. So um, that was disheartening, to say the least, and certainly not patient-focused. 
Yeah. And this profit-focused care, it continues to be a problem. Yeah. Um, but so that's kind of where like like where my purpose is taken off. Like this is where like my, you know, what I can do for Keenan, what I can do for, you know, people in the future and and I don't know. And it feels to me like a piece of your own resilience, you know, that you got handed this really difficult, you know, thing yeah. that you weren't expecting and it was scary and traumatic. And yet you you took that thing and you learned from it. And now you're able to do something with what you learned from it. Yeah. I try. <laughs> it's certainly raising a young man who has so much personality, but is also, you know, nonverbal and has really significant seizures and and just in general is is pretty neurodivergent has taught me so much about kind of like how the human brain works and it's helped me understand so many different ways that my students and my coworkers and my friends like how we just have to be more open like this normalcy is is such a myth yes <laughs> and and that Keenan being so far outside of the norm has helped like highlight so much of that for me that it it's really been um you know I always say if I could go back and take away all of the pain that he's experienced and all of the frustration and all of the horrible medical interventions that and surgeries that he's had to have um and oh the medications um if I could take all of that uncomfortableness of him away I would still choose to go through this because of what it has helped teach me mm-hmm. and how it has changed me as a person. Um, and ultimately that's where both Kailas and I had to, we had to be okay with walking through that fire again before we d- decided to have another kid. And, mm-hmm. and we did. And she happens to be neurotypical and, and they have a lovely sibling relationship where they have lots of fun and argue with each other in, in their own unique ways. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds like, you know, it wasn't just the intensity of, you know, this first period of time in Keenan's life when he was a tiny baby and things were so touch and go that it's really been a long-term, I don't want to use the word, burden. Keenan is definitely not a burden, but a, a long-term struggle of, yeah. you know, keeping Keenan healthy, okay, in equilibrium moving forward as much as Keenan can. Yeah. And that was, I had a social worker that worked with us, Kim. She was, she's an amazing human being. And one of the things that she really helped me understand very early on was that special needs parenting is really not about having a grief at the beginning and then you get over it. It is a cyclical form of grief where, you know, of course, at this very beginning, you have this idea of what your child is going to be like. And then um, there is a, you know, profound difference. (laughs) Like, um, have you ever heard of the story of, Welcome to Holland. Have you ever heard that story? Mm-mm. So there's, in the special needs community, you hear it a lot, where having a baby born that's special needs is really similar to 
this idea that you plan this big, beautiful trip to Italy and you learn Italian and you buy all the guidebooks and you read about everything that you're going to do. And you get on the plane and you're so excited for this trip to Italy that you have dreamed about your entire life and you get off the plane and they say, welcome to Holland. Mm. And you don't know the language and you don't know anything about the country and you don't know and you have to learn a completely new vocabulary. But over time, you start to realize there are really beautiful parts of Holland, you know, that there are really beautiful parts to this this part that you didn't expect. Mm-hmm. And but it, it, there's this grief of not being able to go to Italy, there, that it's there. And eventually you become like I at least came to terms with the fact of, you know, my son is who he is. I've redefined what it means for him, you know, like a happy life is a successful life for him, you know. But at the same time, every time there's a milestone, it can be an unexpected grief. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, there, there's this balance where, you know, some of his milestones like when my daughter started walking, it was like, cool, that's neat trick, kiddo. You know, like it was beautiful and wonderful. But when my son started walking after 18 months of therapy, it was like mind blowing. And like, you know, like you couldn't contain the joy that radiated through our entire family, you know? Yeah. And so there's there's this difference in how milestones feel, but then there's also like, my son's still in fourth grade because he's had to miss a lot of school and because he has intellectual disabilities. But all of his peers graduated from elementary school this year. Right. And I didn't expect it. I didn't expect that moment of grief, yeah. but it was there just... You know, and so there's the cyclical grief as things, you know, that you just learn to live with and yeah. learn to let be a part of your world. Yeah. And and then you get other interesting things. So it doesn't go away, but it is, uh, I think, understanding that the nature of the grief process in special needs parenting is has helped me. And I think Kim all the time, even yeah. though I don't see her much anymore. <laughs> yeah. But... Thank you so much for coming here and sharing your story and your perspective with us. You know, my hope for a lot of these stories is that there'll be somebody out there who's in a similar situation who will hear this and feel like they have a point of connection. And I think, you know, the way you just described being a special needs mom, I I just have the feeling somebody out there is going to really connect with that. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. I love what you're doing here. Oh, yeah. Well, it was a treat to be with you today. Badass would not be possible without the support of several people who have donated their skills to the show. First of all, Kevin Evans, who has volunteered his time recording and editing the show. Thank you, Kevin. Another big thanks to Austin Lucas and his record label Last Chance Records for allowing us the use of his original music. In addition, we would like to thank Kate Long and her band, Rodeola for the use of their original music. Finally, a big thanks to the Badass Team's life partners, Alex and Amy, who have made do without us on weekends and evenings as we have been holed up working on the show. Mm-hmm.